Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Ellen McGirt. Our guest today is the CEO of oil giant Chevron. And I tell you what, and I typically use stronger language than this, it's been a heck of a time to be running an oil company. Uh, it certainly is. I mean, the thanks to the pandemic, demand for oil and the oil price dropped to levels we haven't seen in decades. But I think the big question is, what happens in the future? Will that demand return? And our guest, who has been CEO of Chevron since 2018... I'm sure has the answer. So, Mike, let's let's dive right in. Here's the big question I'd like you to start with. A number of companies have been writing down the value of their oil and gas reserves, including Chevron, cutting capital spending, including Chevron. I think you recently announced a cut to about 14 billion in exploration, and if I'm right, you were once three times that. Uh, so, are we seeing peak oil here? Uh, is the age of oil coming to an end? No, in a word, it's, it's not, Alan. But what we are seeing is an adjustment in an industry that has had access to capital in abundance and has been very successful in finding and developing new resource. And frankly, it's an industry that has overbuilt the capacity for the, the demand in the market and this is both in the U.S. And, and elsewhere around the world, and has not been the best steward of capital. And so returns have been low. Investors are frustrated by that. And frankly, a lot of this investment occurred last decade when the price of oil was close to $100, which in both the historical context and frankly, in the way we look at the world was the exception, not the rule. But there was a period of time when the industry behaved as if that was what the future looked like. And of course, that's not, I think, the shared view today, but it was an enormous part of the energy economy today and will be for, for a long, long time to come. Well, let's talk about that long, long time to come, because we've had a number of companies on this podcast over the course of the last year that are buying on to the UN goal of reaching zero net carbon emissions by the year 2050. In fact, our very first guest on the podcast was Satya Nadella from Microsoft, who had just adopted an ambitious policy to support the UN goal of no net carbon emissions by 2050. If what you're saying is true, if demand for oil and gas is going to continue for a long, long time to come, is this goal of trying to have uh, no net carbon emissions by 2050 a realistic goal? Well, it's it's. I think it's a it's a very realistic ambition, and we we fully expect the energy economy to be a lower carbon economy and the global economy, a lower, lower carbon energy system as we move to the future. And every company, every country has a different role to play in that economy. I've talked to Satya about this. And of course, you know, their energy is primarily consumed in server farms, the power to, to keep their servers going, and then their buildings and business travel. Uh, their primary product is not supplying energy, they're a consumer of energy. So they're net zero mitigation equation is quite different than a, a company in an industry like ours. And, and so, you know, there's a couple of things that are really important. Uh, I said the future energy will be lower carbon. Affordable, reliable energy is essential to a growing economy and a prosperous 
future. And the existing oil and gas industry can become a lower carbon component of that energy system as we go forward. And, and I think most people in our industry are absolutely committed to that and spending a lot of time, money and resource on that journey, along with people in many other industries. Just to make sure I to clarify this before I turn it over to Ellen, you say lower carbon, but the UN goal is no net carbon emissions by 2050. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. Does Chevron think that's a realistic goal? And what does that mean for Chevron in 2050? Well, so, so there's a couple of key words in there. Net, net is really a very key word because it doesn't mean there will be zero carbon emissions. It means zero net emissions. And anybody that you talk to that has studied this will say that in order to achieve that, we've got to find a way to get carbon out of the atmosphere. And we're working hard on that, and many other companies are. We have the largest on-purpose carbon capture and storage project in the world running in Australia. We've spent over a billion dollars on a project that sequesters three to four million tons a year of CO2 back into the earth. Uh, we're working on uh, technologies to take CO2 out of the ambient air, to take it out of combustion streams on uh, heaters and furnaces and, and fired equipment. And so the ambition is realistic. I think we're going to need a lot of technologies and solutions that don't exist today to actually take carbon out of the atmosphere to get to a net zero, because the reality is there will still be carbon emissions in the system as we get to 2050 under any scenario. Speaking of new technologies, new ideas, new magic, I wanted to ask the clean energy question, uh, because I know it comes up. I know you get asked it a lot. And I'm curious how you really if you could unpack it for us. Should Chevron be spending more money to develop clean energy technologies? It seems to be what European companies are doing, like BP, Shell, and Total in France. Why not you? Oh, we are. I actually think the gap between the U.S. companies, not just ours, but others in, in the U.S., and the European companies, in terms of actions, is not as wide as the gap in the works. The European companies have been more forthcoming, more ambitious in their declarations and, uh, and, and their pledges of ambition than I think the American companies are. But look, we are manufacturing renewable natural gas today in partnership with dairy farmers. And we take methane emissions that otherwise would go into the atmosphere. Methane's a much more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. And we're capturing those emissions and converting them into natural gas that displaces fossil fuel natural gas. And we're doing that today. We're selling renewable diesel fuel today. We manufacture renewable base oils for lubricants today. We have solar and wind powering our operations today. We are investing in nuclear fusion, uh, hydrogen, all types of energy that can be part of these, uh, you know, of a, of a lower energy, lower carbon energy system in the future. If these technologies were easy and technically feasible and economic, they'd be in widespread use today. So they're big barriers to be overcome. And, uh, and our company is investing in this, as are many, many others in our industry. That leads me to a question on stakeholder capitalism that, that we talk about a lot here. I'm curious from a philosopher CEO point of view, how you are thinking about the stakeholder capitalism conversation. I'll give you an example that's specific to you. You talk a lot about the primacy of dividends, being able to deliver dividends as a very important part of your leadership mandate. How do you balance a shareholder mandate as specific as that with the broader interests of society and the interests of stakeholders at large as we're dealing with climate crisis and it keeps unfolding? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've been a stakeholder capitalist company 
for many decades. Environmental issues are always important in our industry. Social issues, we operate uh, around the world in many different countries with many different social contexts, uh, many different socioeconomic starting points and putting people at the heart of our company and the communities in which we operate at the heart of our operations and our commitments has been a priority for us for decades. And, And good governance is essential when you're running a large complex industry and shareholders are a part of that. And so most of the people who own our stock are people that depend on that income as part of a retirement plan. And the the dividend is essential to them and we viewed it as a promise and we would never increase our dividend unless we believed we could fulfill that promise in perpetuity. So we take that very seriously. And and so we have to balance out all those interests. And I tell people on, on the issue of climate, we have to find ways to do things that are good for the environment and good for shareholders. If we over-index just on shareholders and don't care about the environment, that's not sustainable. Likewise, if all we do is invest in environmental projects and uh, and don't pay attention to the needs of our shareholders, that's not sustainable either. But Mike, that's, that's really interesting because I think you may be the first CEO we've had on this show who's openly acknowledged that there may be a conflict between those two things, that looking after the interests of your shareholders and looking after the interests of stakeholders, or in this case, the climate, don't always fit together. Well, I think the challenge is to find ways to do both. And we could invest our way into bankruptcy on uneconomic projects that might be good for society, and then we can't help solve these problems. The history of our industry has been one where there has always been an energy transition underway. And we need to acknowledge that the challenges in front of us today that seem enormous are in many ways not different from challenges this industry has faced over our history and i believe in innovation technology markets and the creative spirit of our people to work with others to address these problems in a way that solves for all of the above that brings me to another interesting question because i i think this to the extent there is a conflict between stakeholders and shareholders it tends to go away over time they tend to converge over time so look into the future we've already talked in this conversation about 2050 and the un goal of no net emissions which you uh, said is a a reasonable goal we've talked about your belief that oil and gas remain an important part of the energy picture for some time and we talk about the investments you're making in various efforts at clean energy What does Chevron look like in the year 2050? How will you create your value for shareholders? Well, I think we we will be a a large company that invests in complex, scaled energy delivery solutions for the economy. And, And I think those solutions will look different in different parts of the world because the starting point in North America and Western Europe is very different than it is in Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or South Asia. And the issue of affordability, of progress, and of the, the quality of life, it's really important in our industry to understand the context matters. And uh, each country has its own nationally determined contribution plan right under the Paris Agreement. And that is based on the starting point, the affordability, the type of an economy they have and what their needs are. And we have to meet those needs 
as that country has them. And so, so we participate in these economies around the world. And I think what you'll see, Alan, is that we will have solutions that meet these needs in different parts of the world that will look in some ways similar to what we do today because there'll be large, complex, capital-intensive types of solutions, but they will be more diverse than our historic ones, which have been primarily hydrocarbon-based. I'm here with Joe Yukazaglu, CEO of Deloitte US. And Joe, we did a survey together that shows 60% of CEOs see lasting changes in the way customers are behaving. That's a real challenge for companies in thinking about how they engage their customers, isn't it? Alan, there's no doubt the events of the past few months are reshaping the world. Perhaps remote work has garnered most of the headlines, but it's also very clear that the way in which consumers behave their purchasing behaviors, their desire to engage in new ways virtually, much of that will stick. It doesn't go away when we move past the health crisis, which makes it critical that companies are driving a customer-focused technology strategy, investing in engaging customers digitally. And we certainly see that focus across our client base, that even as resources are scarce, investments in digital transformation are being prioritized. Uh, So there's some big changes in store in the coming months. There absolutely are. But again, these are opportunities to drive a much richer method of customer engagement, to leverage data, to apply advanced analytics and cognitive technologies, and ultimately drive higher levels of customer engagement. Fascinating. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Alan. switch to a leadership question. You you mentioned the vast nature of your business, leading in different economies, different parts of the world. What is it like to listen to the needs of employees in vastly different places? And my follow-up to that is, how has the pandemic affected your ability to lead in a differentiated way as different people are having different different problems across the world? Yeah. So um, it's quite interesting. The cultures are different, obviously, in in the different places where we work. But we work hard to have a common culture inside the walls of our company. Uh, We put safety at the very top of that uh, because we do things that are challenging and can be dangerous and people can be injured uh, severely. The environment is right at the top alongside that. And so we have a common language within the company and a common set of values that really unite us, uh, irrespective of the culture when people leave work and go home. And so that's a foundation. I've learned as I've lived and worked around the world that it's really important to understand the context for the place where you're you're doing your business. And I started my career and spent a lot of the early years here in the US. And when I first went to Asia, I made some horrific mistakes uh, out of ignorance. And uh, I ended up with a mentor, who a reverse mentor, somebody who worked for me, who explained to me uh, the nature of my mistakes, how things worked. And you know, there's a great quote by Lee Kuan Yew that says, Asia is a figment of the Western imagination because Korea is different than Thailand, which is different than Japan, which is different than China, historically, culturally, uh, religiously, in every way. And, uh, and so I've learned you have to ask. 
you have to respect, you have to learn, and that's how you connect with your people around the world. Uh, in the pandemic, Ellen, I think, you know, empathy has been the, the common theme. We've had people under very different conditions with uh, varying health, public health systems and capabilities. We've invested in PPE. We've donated ventilators to hospitals. We've treated people. We provide testing infrastructure to governments and finding a way to help our host countries deal with their health situation has been the highest priority for us in keeping our people safe has. And of course, the tragedies, we've had deaths in our, our workforce. And so I think empathy has been the common thread throughout all of the communication as we deal with the circumstances that are so different in so many ways. You also have in those places these wild swings in uh, oil prices that I mean, you referred to investment decisions being made when oil was at $100 a barrel. And then after the pandemic hit, we went down 20, right? And that has enormous boom bust impacts. We see this in the United States in the oil towns, but certainly in the other countries as well. How do you mitigate for that? How do you deal with the disruption and pain that's caused by uh, those boom bust cycles? Well, it's been somewhat a characteristic of this industry for its history. And, uh, you know, there's a very famous uh, bumper sticker that you will see in Texas or Oklahoma that says, please, God, give me one more oil boom. I won't mess this one up. <laughs> and uh, there's been a kind of a pro-cyclical investment pattern where the industry chases the price up. And then, of course, you get too much supply and prices have to come off. And uh, we're trying to look at that differently. And we've been running the company differently, assuming that we're in a lower for longer kind of a world, that we need to invest in projects and resources that can be competitive at the bottom of the cycle, and then they will be better at the top of the cycle, and, uh, and being very disciplined in, in the way we invest our capital. And uh, the whole industry had you know access to pretty easy money for more than a decade, and there was a bit of a resource boom that technology and horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing opened up and uh, in the industry over-invested. And we've really tried to uh, become much more disciplined with capital, with costs, and uh, build a business that can compete in any environment and is really prepared for the trough of the cycle. And then when, when things are better than that, uh, we'll be fine, but we, you know, we won't have to chase the cycle up and down. Yeah. That's where noble energy comes in. I, I was confessing earlier, I don't really... I don't really have the technical chops to understand the ins and outs of the oil business, but I sure understand a bargain when I hear one. Can you tell us a little bit about that acquisition and why it fits into your broader vision? Sure. It's a, uh, it's a company that was smaller than ours and had a fairly focused portfolio in, in three primary areas that were very, very attractive. One is the Permian Basin, which is pretty synergistic with our position in West Texas. Uh, the second is in Denver in something called the DGA Basin, or Eastern Colorado, out in rural Eastern Colorado, where we don't have a position, but a high quality resource. And then the third is uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, offshore from Israel. It's a very large gas discovery that is now uh, supplying gas for power generation into Israel, Jordan, and Egypt and has the possibility to provide supplies into other countries in the region and perhaps even beyond that into Europe, for instance. And so they had a, a portfolio of assets that were uh, very attractive. The company had a little more debt probably than through a cycle like this, you know, you'd like to have. And also some of the risks, particularly the geopolitical risks in the Middle East were seen by investors as significant for a smaller company to manage. A larger company like ours, has geopolitical risk in many places, 
but we're in many places. And so you can mitigate some of that risk through portfolio diversification. And, um, and so we were able to do a deal that we think is good for the shareholders of both companies. Mike, I, I was at a, a college football game last year. I won't name the schools, but at halftime, it was disrupted because several hundred students from both schools went and sat down on the field and said they weren't going to move until both schools agreed to stop investing their endowments in oil companies. How do you deal with, and these are these are good schools, these are presumably smart kids. Uh, how do you deal with a younger generation that feels that your industry just shouldn't exist, should be gone tomorrow? And, and by the way, listeners, Mike knows the names of the schools. I can tell by the look on his face. <laughs> I do. I was actually watching the game because my daughter is an alumnus, a recent alumnus of one of the two schools. And, and it was uh, very cold, and we had to sit there for a long time waiting for the second half to start. I know. Most of the rest of the students left to head for the bars when they happened. Um, look, I, I understand what they were expressing. And, um, you know, I went to school at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And uh, in my younger days, uh, my hair was longer, I had a beard, and I protested everything I could find to protest too. And, uh, and as I got a little bit older, I understood more about how uh, the world really works. And I look back at some of the things that I believed when I was young, and I realized I probably didn't know as much then as I thought that I did. And, and so, uh, you know, part of this, I think, is, uh, you know, it's part of growing up, is you want to be part of whatever the movement is at the time. And uh, you want to be heard and you want to make a difference. And I totally get that. We spend time on a lot of campuses and we go to campus and we talk to kids about the realities of the energy sector. And look, we're for solar, we're for wind, we're for hydrogen, we're for all types of energy. The world needs them all and they all have a place in the system. And so we have an honest conversation on campuses with students and we still have a very you know, attractive yield of the, the good students from the good schools that we go to. And uh, not everybody wants to work for us, but not everybody wants to work in any industry. And so people self-select, but uh, we, have a, we have a really great culture in our company. We have an absolute commitment to, to the environment, to safety, and we have a commitment to diversity and inclusion that I put up with against anybody in our industry and frankly in most industries and we attract a, a, a really strong set of young people into our company and i think once they get here they they live our values and uh, we haven't really seen a problem in recruiting alan i'm curious that's interesting i'm i'm curious too about the kinds of ways that you listen to your employees you have a diverse employee base the business case is that you get better ideas and i'm particularly curious about what's happened for Chevron during the pandemic. As we interview folks for over the, the past few months, we keep hearing story after story after story of the, well, the one thing that we didn't think to do, we're now doing. The one thing we thought we'd have to postpone, we get to do it now. I'm curious how you're listening to your employees, how you're choosing good ideas, and what, if anything, broke through for you in the last year. So, um a few different things quickly on listening. Uh, one, when, when I came into this role three years ago, we didn't have a so, an internal social media network. We do now. It's very active. And and it's got every kind of conversation. You know, the, the biggest group is Chevron dogs. And, um, and there's also Chevron cats and Chevron parents. It's opened up a rich vein of dialogue and the ability to really hear what's on people's minds. And it's eliminated the distance between where I sit and the front line of our organization around the world because everybody is available to everybody else. Second thing that we have is a group of employee resource groups, or we call them employee networks. We've got 13 of them. And I meet regularly. I've set up what I call the this 
Chairman's Inclusion Council. So the presidents of our employee networks, which is the you know the Women's Network, the African American Network, Black Employees Network, XYZ. We've got a, a called Enabled for our disabled employees, Pride for our LGBTQ employees. I meet with the presidents of those groups multiple times a year. And it's their agenda. They write the agenda, and it's what they want to talk to the senior executives of the company about what we should hear from them, what they're hearing from their constituents. And the third thing we've been doing during the, the pandemic are pulse surveys into our, our workforce. And they're simple, three questions, five questions. And we'll ask questions that are, are relevant and timely given the, the circumstances. And we've used that to identify needs that we might not otherwise be aware of relative to schooling or elder care, or you know, there's been a whole host of things. And, and we've got an interesting situation. About a third of our people have to go to their same place of work. Because if you work mm. on a ship, an offshore drilling rig, a platform in a remote location around the world with a big processing facility. You can't do that from your spare bedroom. So they've been at work 24 seven, 365. About two thirds of our employees have been working from home by and large. And, uh, and so the needs in those two groups are really quite different. And so we've got to listen carefully to understand what we need to do to help our people through this. And so we've used a variety of techniques to be sure that we're listening and, and adapting to uh, the circumstances as they evolve. And, and take that one more step for us, Mike, because now we've gotten really to the point that is the core of this podcast. You're in a much more transparent world. You're in a world where you have to be more empathetic. You have to listen more closely to your employees. How has that changed the way you lead a large company like Chevron compared to when you started two years ago or your predecessors 10 or 20 years ago? You know, when I started, uh, I can remember, I didn't even know who the CEO was. And I didn't really (laughs) care. Right, right, right. right. right? I just had a job in a place. I was happy to have a paycheck and a boss. And and all the rest of that stuff was kind of out of sight, out of mind. Young people today come in a lot smarter than I was. One of the big things that's changed is the connectivity. I don't have a tie on today. I don't have a jacket on today. When I started, you wore a three-piece suit even as an entry-level employee, especially as an executive. And uh, when I had to communicate with somebody, I would handwrite a memo, I'd take it to the typing pool, it would get typed up, and a week later, I'd redline it and go back and you try to sweet talk your way to the front of the line, and then you drop it in an envelope and it would go via Pony Express to the home office. And a month later, the same thing would have happened. I get text messages from employees around the world instantaneously, wow. 24 hours a day yeah. now. So I think the communication and the uh, what I would say the ability to kind of cut through the layers is dramatically different. And so my ability to get a message out to our people, I do uh, you know Zoom town halls with our global workforce, and I do them at different times of the day. I'll do multiple ones throughout a day to hit every part of the world. And I'm connecting face-to-face live with people uh, in a way that wasn't possible technologically just a few years ago. But I think it gives employees the ability to know their leadership, to ask hard questions. We don't censor the questions. We don't script the questions. And so you can really get into some honest conversations about things. So I think that has really changed. Uh, We've had to change the cycle of decision-making during the pandemic because in our Mm. industry, particularly, oil prices went to zero, one to below zero one day. And you didn't have a lot of time to study things. And large organizations are large bureaucracies in many ways. And so our decision processes uh, were out of sync with the cycle time that decisions need to be made in. So we had to short circuit that. A lot more time with the executive team. We had to really change some things uh, as we were in the heart of the pandemic. And we couldn't study stuff forever. Uh, we reset our capital plan. We had our analyst day in, in New York the uh, second week of March. And on a Tuesday, we laid out a plan for the next five years 
On Friday, Saudi Arabia and Russia had a falling out at an OPEC meeting, and the price of oil uh, plummeted on Monday morning when yeah. the market opened. And we had a week to redo our entire plan. Yeah, and this wow. is a plan that took us nine months to prepare. And I had to say, look, in a week, we're going to have a reduced level of capital, a reduced level of cost, change our entire set of priorities. And you find out you can do things at a different clock speed in a crisis than you do in, in normal time. Yeah. You sure do. You know, for a long-haired protester knocking around <laughs> Pearl Street back in the day, you sure turned out, Mike Worth. My Lord. I've been really, out. really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of this uh, podcast. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. I'm sorry. Can I do a quick timeout? My uh, Labrador retriever who went out 10 minutes ago has now decided he wants to come in and he's going to sit outside the door and bark until I let him. So hang on. He wants to be part of the podcast. Go get Cooper. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> well, of course, now he wants to eat, <laughs> but but let's let's keep going and we'll uh, we'll get through that.